infamous story where Jesus performs his first miracle. He turns the water into wine. So right off the bat, I want to give you the main point. All right, the focus, the, the main thing. I want to give you the main thing because as we go through this and we talk about other things, it, it, you're going to see why it's, it's vital, not, not just here, by the way, but just as a general principle, it is vital that we know and understand and stay focused on whatever the main thing is. All right, so if, if you're going to take a nap or work on your grocery list or whatever, when you wake back up, and you wonder where we are, I'm giving you the main thing right now. That's where we are, okay? And as I said, it's a, it's a case with, with any Bible study. We want to keep our focus on the main thing because when we don't, we get off in the weeds, we get distracted, we argue, we fuss, we fight, we debate, we separate, we do all these things. And then you know what happens when all that's happening? What's not happening? Lost people are perishing. That's what's happening. So we want to Focus on the main thing today. And we're very fortunate because the Apostle John, he gives us the main thing for the entire book. But in this story, he gives us the main thing for the story as well. I want to look at both of these with you. And so if you have your sword, turn it on or open it up to John chapter 2. And the first thing I want to do is go towards the end of the book. I don't know if we have this on the screen or not, but it's in John chapter 20, verse 30. And that's where John gives us the main thing for the whole book. Here it is. I'll read it to you. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John 20, verse 30 and 31. That's the point of John's gospel. If ever you find yourself not knowing where to open up and start reading, if you're one that starts reading through the Bible in a year and you might make it through Genesis and you might even make it through Exodus, but you get to Leviticus and you, you start again next year. You know, you're done, right? Uh, or you might even make it to the Chronicles and, 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 and you don't make it. If, if you're one of those and you don't really know where to open up, where to start, where to, where to read from, where to study, I just want to suggest to you the gospel according to John is excellent. It's excellent for believers. It's excellent for unbelievers. It's excellent to be used as a tool for study to get to know who he is. And in doing so, we will see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we will have eternal life. That's John's mission in writing the gospel. Now, to our story for today, it's in the beginning of the book, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Read along with me. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And he said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. 
So they took it to him, and when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. Then, when people have drunk freely, and, and uh, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The point of this story, the main thing, it's in verse 11. Here it is. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in, excuse me, in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Let's pray, and then we're going to delve into this, okay? Father, thank you for this time you've blessed us with. Thank you that we could come and gather and worship freely, open your word and study freely in our our desire, our hope, our prayer, our request, Father, is that your Holy Spirit would teach us what this story is meant to teach us and that you would receive glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, the main thing of the story, it's given to us in verse 11. That's really neat because that doesn't always happen. When we do Bible study, it's not always that crystal clear. It's not given to us like this. But here, John gives it to us. And the main point, again, is that Jesus revealed his glory to his disciples. And they believed in him. It's vital to remain focused on that. That is the main point of the passage. Because there are so many other distractions and rabbit holes that we can argue, fuss, and fight over. It's been argued that Jesus was rude to his mother. Uh, Jesus made wine, which too much of it makes you drunk, and that's a sin. So there's been centuries of debate over that. Jesus lost his argument with his mother. That's one that we're going to look at a little bit. And there are many who take this story to mean that we receive salvation just by virtue of the fact that Jesus was at this wedding. And so now, one of the things that leads you to salvation is you got to get married. And when you get married, somehow, mysteriously, grace is bestowed upon you that leads to your salvation. None of those are the main thing. Jesus, who is the Yahweh Creator God from Genesis 1 is God in the flesh from John 1. He's the one that changed the water into wine so his disciples would believe. That's the whole point. Okay? You with me so far? Say yes. All right. Good. He created everything. And here, Jesus inaugurates his public ministry with a creation miracle. He creates wine from water in jars that were normally used for Jewish ceremonial washing. And his sole purpose in writing, as we said, this entire book is so that you and I and everyone else who reads it may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. No, there's no ambiguity, no confusion, no doubt. And believing that about Jesus, we would 
be led to repentance and receiving eternal life. That's what it's all about. And if you look back from the very first verse of John chapter 1, John accomplishes that purpose. In verse 1 of chapter 1, he tells us Jesus is the incarnate word. Jesus is the eternal creator. He is the true light, the source of true life in verse 5. He's the absolute perfect fullness of grace and truth, which is a poetic way of saying he's God revealed to us in this man, Jesus. In verse 18, he's the only begotten of God. He's the Son of God. He's God the Son. He's the Son of Man from Daniel 7. He's the Lord God Yahweh from Exodus. And in chapter 1, he quotes back from Isaiah the prophet in chapter 40 that he is the Lord Yahweh. He's the Passover lamb from Exodus who John the Baptist proclaimed takes away the sin of the world. He's the Messiah, the Savior, the King of Israel, who just a few verses earlier in chapter 1, Nathaniel, the the new disciple, makes this proclamation, you are the King of Israel, the one promised from old. He's the Jacob's ladder, the mediator between heaven and earth. He's the one testified about by John the Baptist in chapter 1, by the apostle John himself, by Simon Peter, by Andrew, by Philip, by Nathaniel, as being the Christ. In verse 45 of chapter 1, he's the one about whom all of the Old Testament prophets, the law and the prophets, uh, prophesied about and pointed to. This is him, this Jesus in the flesh. This is the one. And that's just chapter 1. So John's purpose is fulfilled just in chapter 1. If we had John chapter 1 and no other chapters after it, if the other 20 chapters didn't exist, it would be more than we could spend time every day for the rest of the year delving into John chapter 1 and all of the truths and realities of who Jesus Christ is just in chapter 1 and never reach the bottom of all of that richness that's there. So he continues beyond, obviously, chapter 1. And in chapter 2, we begin to see the signs that on top of all of those other things that testify, now we have signs to further testify to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. So we have a story. The story is this setting, this the story, like if you go back to school, you remember there's three main parts to a story. Your teachers may may be able to remember some of this. Uh, The basic parts of a story. You've got the the setting or the place, right? You've got the characters, you've got the plot. Not necessarily in that order, but those there are other parts to more complicated stories. But I want to look at those basic parts of this story because as we do, we're going to see some things, some practical application. There's a lot of application in this story of where Jesus turned this water into wine. So on the third day, very first verse, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, the third day from what? John has a very peculiar or interesting way of recording time because it's actually day seven but it's it's the end of the first week of Jesus public ministry but he says on the third day and I think he does that because what he's doing is alluding to what what else happened on the third day the resurrection he's alluding to the resurrection and so this uh, story picks up after Jesus is baptized in chapter one after Uh, Jesus is led off by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. John doesn't record that, but this would have been right after that. And so after that, Jesus goes around and he begins teaching in the synagogues around Galilee, and people quickly 
take notice. Including the Jewish leaders. The Levites send some of their people out there to John the Baptist, and they start to interrogate him. Are, are, you, are you the one? Are, are you Elijah? In chapter 1, he calls his first few disciples. We know there's at least five when we get to the wedding story. There may be more. They're just not named. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But on the third day, what does it say happened? It says there was what? There was a wedding. There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, just to help you real quickly, not a lot of time. I want to put this in perspective. Cana of Galilee was a few miles north of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, right? There, they, they, these were small, close-knit hometown, or, or towns. Uh, we're very familiar with those here. In fact, you don't have to go very far if you want to just imagine the town of Dry Prong probably has somewhere around 450, 500 people. That's about the size of Nazareth. That's about the same amount of people, same size. And just north of Nazareth was Cana of Galilee, a much smaller town, kind of like maybe what Bentley would be. Bentley, uh, in our case, Bentley's south of Dry Prong, but in their case, Cana was north of uh, Nazareth. So they were very close. They were small towns. The people back then weren't nearly as mobile as we are today. And so the, the families from those towns would have been living in, and in those towns for generations, for hundreds of years. And you know what it's like in a small town, right? Everyone what? Everyone either knows everyone, at the very least knows everyone. Most of them are related. And they have a very intimate knowledge, especially having been there for so many generations. When we first moved to this area from down south, we moved to Montgomery. 720 plus or so, plus or minus, 720 people. It grew by two when we were there because a couple in our church had twins. So 722 people. And everybody, coming from New Orleans, it was just really, really strange. In fact, I went to the dollar store one day, and the clerk who I had never met, never seen, had no clue what her name was, wanted to know uh, how Teresa was doing, recovering from pneumonia. I had no clue. How, I mean, so everybody knows everybody. You know what it's like. And that's what it's like here. They all knew each other. Not only did they not, know, not just know each other, I think that because of their close, close proximity and because of the involvement that we're going to look at in a minute, I think, I think they were intimately related. They were family. And then we have a wedding. So we have a small town. We have two small towns closely uh, tied together. The families know each other, probably are related, and then they have a wedding. Now, weddings in their culture were a big day, even bigger than they are now. And a, a typical Jewish wedding would last seven days. And, 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 and their custom was the... the after about a year of engagement, where the bridegroom is spending that year preparing for his family, building whatever house they're going to live in and preparing for the wedding and all of, the, all of that. Those of you preparing for weddings or have prepared for weddings know what that's like, right? It's a lot of work. And so it was no different then. And then they would come together for the wedding feast, and the wedding feast lasted a week typically. And the bride, though, she would be hidden. She would be kept in a part of the house away from the festivities until the last day. And then what would happen on the last day is they would pray it out the bride. And there was, that was the, 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 the apex, the peak of the celebration. It was a huge party. 
And then that was it. Well, what happens here, we don't know what day of the week this was, but reading context and some other things, it looks like Jesus and his entourage, his disciples and whoever else was following him, got there at the beginning. So it was a huge problem, a huge embarrassment if ever the food or the wine ran out. It just was. It was a huge embarrassment to the groom, to the family, to everybody involved. It was a huge, huge problem. By the way, the, 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 their, their traditional wedding uh, was a picture of the wedding banquet believers will attend in heaven where we're tucked away for seven years. Uh, but that's a whole other uh, thing to look at another day. So again, uh, day seven, the bride would come out, huge festive celebration. But then we get to the problem. And the problem, quickly, Mary comes to Jesus, the mother of Jesus, John refers to her. He says, uh, you can imagine the immensity of the problem, running out of wine at the beginning, before the celebration barely even gets started, before you bring out your bride, after you just spent a year demonstrating to her family that you can provide for her. And, and this is not, not, a good, not a good thing. So Jesus is there with his disciples. He had already started to attract an audience. And it doesn't tell us this, but it's safe to assume that that the, the running out of uh, wine was probably in part because of the larger-than-expected crowd that was there following Jesus. Some commentators theorize, theorize John is the bridegroom here, John the apostle. Others theorize the bridegroom and possibly both the bride and the bridegroom were relatives of Mary and, and Jesus and his brothers and sisters that were there. And it all makes sense based on what we know about the proximity of these small towns and where they were. And it all explains why Mary apparently had an important role in this ceremony. So when they, when they start to run out of wine, she comes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. So that's the setting, the story, the plot kind of laid out in a very quick uh, overview kind of way. But the third part of a story is the characters. And I want to look at some of these characters with you because in looking at these characters is where we're going to get application. Because if you look at when Mary came to Jesus, his answer to her literally was, what to me and to you? That's his literal answer. A paraphrase is, what does that have to do with us? That was, that was his question. And that is the question I have for you today, because when we look at these, the, some of these characters in this story, we're, we're going to have an answer to that question. What does this have to do with us? Why are we talking about this in church on this Sunday morning? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I want to start with his disciples. In verse 11, we know, as I said a little while ago, this whole story and this sign, the whole event was all orchestrated as part of God's divine designed to reveal further Jesus to his disciples. The sign was for the disciples. And we know from chapter 1 that Jesus wasn't the Jesus they expected. He wasn't the Messiah they expected. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning, that Jesus isn't really what anybody expected. As a matter of fact, if you go back to John the Baptist, in his testimony in chapter 1, twice he says, 
uh, when the Levites come to interrogate him, he, twice he says, I didn't recognize him. John wasn't saying, I didn't recognize him. This was his cousin. They grew up together. They, he knew Jesus, but what he was testifying was, I didn't recognize him as the Messiah. And in that statement, twice, it's recorded in chapter 1, not only John, Nathaniel does a similar thing. When, when uh, was it Andrew came to Nathaniel? No, Philip comes to Nathaniel and says, we, we, this is the one that the law and the prophets have been telling us about? For Jesus from Nazareth? And what's Nathaniel's response? He's like, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He wasn't expecting the Messiah to come from there to be this Jesus. So Jesus is never, uh, even for the disciples, what they expected. They, they were able to recognize him another way. And this was the question Eric asked, the opening question in Sunday school this morning. So if you were in Sunday school, uh, maybe you might uh, be able to answer this question. But the question is, if Jesus were here in the flesh, how would you recognize him for who John says he is in chapter 1? How did his disciples recognize him as the Messiah? It tells us in chapter 1, Verse 45, let me back up to 43. The next day, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee. He found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. And verse 45, Philip found Nathanael, and he says to him, we found the one of whom Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And that's where Nathanael says, can anything good come from Nazareth? So how did the disciples recognize that this Jesus in the flesh that was standing in their midst was the Messiah? How, how did they know? They knew because they knew the Scriptures. They compared what they knew about this man, Jesus, in their midst to what they knew about the Old Testament Scriptures. Moses and the prophets is a way of say, describing in general the whole Old Testament. The Old Testament law and the prophets they, everything that they tell us about the Messiah, this is him. They knew Jesus. They recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, not because he performed any miracles, because he hadn't done any yet. They knew who Jesus was because they knew the Scriptures. And this is the question I have for you, the first question. Knowing what you know about the law and the prophets the Old Testament, would you recognize, would you be able to recognize Jesus if he was here physically in your midst, just based on your knowledge of the Old Testament, like they did? Maybe you can, maybe you can't. It's a challenge either way, because we learn directly from the disciples who had their own preconceived, mistaken ideas of what the Messiah would look like and be like and what he would do. Jesus didn't fit that. So they go to the scriptures and they realize he actually does fit that. If you had to rely on the scriptures, what kind of shape would you be in? Don't answer that out loud. That's just for you to consider. 
in addition to that, if your version of being in the Word is coming to hear a 20 or 30 or 40 minute sermon two or three times a month, and that's it for you, uh, I just want to tell you that's not going to work. You cannot expect to grow in the faith and knowledge of who Jesus is by coming to hear a short sermon a few times a month. If Jesus were in your midst today, physically like he was there, would you even recognize him? So our tendency is to paint Jesus, all of us, including the disciples, to paint him into something that we think he should be. And we judge those ideas, or we, I should say we have to judge those ideas, those notions, those thoughts, by the truth as it's revealed to us in his word. It's the only uh, objective truth that we can go by. So you have to be aware if someone comes along and says, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, or this is what God told me, and it's not jiving with what's written on and revealed to us already, then you need, to, you need to be really careful. Be aware. And you need to be aware that if you come to him like the Pharisees did, they were looking for signs. They weren't looking to the scriptures. They were looking for, here's how it looks for us today. Dear God, if you will heal my grandmother, then I'll know you're there. Or, uh, dear God, if you get me that new higher-paying job, then, then, then I'll... Or, dear God, and you can fill in the blank. That's, that's what that looks like. And Jesus answers those, those prayers, too, just like he did for the Pharisees. It's not the answer you want. But he tells a story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. And when they both die, the rich man goes to the place of torment. Lazarus, Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man calls over and says, Abraham, send Lazarus up to my brothers to warn them about this place so they don't come here. And the answer back to the rich man was, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. They have the word. They have everything that they need. And if they're not going to believe that, they won't believe even if someone comes back from the dead to try to tell them about it. Mm. And the Lord Jesus, in Matthew chapter 16, he says this, when they ask for these type of signs. An adulterous, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except what? The sign of Jonah, he says. The Old Testament law and prophets reveal who he is. And that's because they have enough signs, and so do we. More so now that we have the Old Testament law and prophets and the New Testament with the signs like this one in, in John chapter 2. Next, we have Mary, one of the key uh, figures in this particular story. Joseph, by the way, we, we think he, he died when Jesus was younger. He's out of the picture. He's not, he's not here. 
And so as the oldest male, Jesus would have assumed the responsibility and role of leadership in the home. And in and, and this water-to-wine sign is reported to us as the first public miracle. But I, I, have to, I have to think that Mary had to know something. His mother had to know. I mean, all the way back from his conception, uh, she, she, she knew some things. And, and even if we can agree that Jesus did not perform any miracles, public or private, up to this day, I think Mary knew some things. Think about it. Think of the problems, just the regular, average, everyday issues, challenges she would face raising a widow trying to, trying to raise and provide for five or six kids. I mean, and, and Jesus being the oldest, she, she, she would come to him. He, he never had a bad idea. He never had a solution to whatever the problem was that was wrong. He... He never had to think up what we might call redneck ingenuity and manufacture something that, that may or may not fail. He never had a bad idea. He never had a bad or wrong thought. And so Mary's got 30 years of history with Jesus in her house, and she knows that whatever Jesus, maybe she doesn't know anything about miracles yet, and that's okay. But what she does know is for the last 30 years that she raised him in her house and he was there, that, that things, he, he's going to have the best solution. Jesus is going to have whatever the solution is. He, he could have told them, give them water. He, she, she could have said, hey, uh, maybe you can preach us a sermon from Proverbs 20 where it talks about wine being a mocker and strong drink being a brawler and you don't really need wine because uh, it's, it's, you're going to get drunk and, and that's a sin. And she, she doesn't know, but she knows that whatever his solution is, whatever it is, there ain't no one else there that's going to come up with anything more effective, nothing better. Now, if you need a neon sign, there's some application for you. Whatever your issue or problem or challenge or fear or concern or need, there ain't nobody anywhere that's going to have a better solution for you than Jesus Christ. So Mary comes in. To Jesus, they have no wine. Mm. He's got the best solution. She just don't know what it is yet. It reminds me in in, in First Peter. This this is Mary. All right, here's some more application for you. In First Peter, in chapter five, Peter wrote this for us. He says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares about you. That wasn't written yet for Mary, but Mary was living that out. She knew that. Even though she may have been looking for some practical solution that would have helped the groomsmen and maybe her and the whole wedding party save face, uh, I, I don't really know. So she goes to Jesus. They have no wine. He responds. He wasn't being rude. 
Some say it was kind of like the southern greeting. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, familiar with her. He didn't say mother. He refers to her kind of like we would in the south as, as, a, as ma'am. Uh, he says, yes, ma'am, I'm aware. Basically, I'm paraphrasing. Yes, ma'am, I'm aware. They're, they're out of wine. But what does that have to do with us? My time has not yet come. <laughs> uh, one person suggested that Jesus was there at the party with his entourage, his new disciples kicking back, and Mary comes, and he says, woman, what does that have to do with us? And she gave him that look. And that's why Jesus relented. As a matter of fact, the Roman Catholic Church has an entire doctrine of praying to Mary based on that idea that comes out of this story. That you should pray to Mary so that Mary will make your petition to Jesus on your behalf because he can't say no to her and he'll answer her more than he'll answer you. That's the idea. To be clear, that's an abomination of the scriptures. Don't believe it. It's not true. The way he spoke to her at the wedding was the same way he spoke to her as he was hanging on the cross. It wasn't rude. He didn't lose an argument with her. He was letting her know, I'm on a different timetable, and I answer to someone higher as he submitted to the will of the Father. And we know there wasn't a conflict. There wasn't an argument because of her response. What does she do next? Immediately, she turns to the servants and says what? Whatever he says, do. There's your application. Whatever he says, you do it. Take your problems to Jesus, like Mary. And when you do, you leave them there. That's trust. That's faith. He doesn't need your help. Whatever he says, you do. Focus on the main thing. What's the main thing? Jesus is the Messiah. He knows and he cares. If only... Me included, obviously. If only we would do that. His glory would be manifested in us just the same. And that's all that matters. The circumstances don't matter. Take it to him. Whatever he says, do it. Next, we have the servants. We don't know who they are because they're not named. Some think they were the disciples that they were serving because of the word that's used to describe them. This one will be quick. Mary turns to them and says, whatever he says, do it. And look at verse 6. What was their response in verse 6? They complained? Did they question? What did they do in verse 6? They did it. 
<laughs> right? In this case, it made no sense to them. That, that, that's often the case. Whatever he says do, you do it, even if it makes no sense. Even if you can't see the end result, the outcome, you do it. And they did it without hesitation, without question, without complaint, without excuses. And listen, I, 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 just, I just know, because I know, some of you have been told by Jesus to do something. I, I don't know what it is. But you haven't done what he's told you. And if you would just stop and do what he says, he will open the floodgates of heaven and manifest his glory in you and in your life. And I know that's true because it happened to me after I gave him 21 years worth of excuses. I was like Balaam, the one who was chastised by his donkey. Except it wasn't a donkey that chastised me. I, I literally had lost people. Lost people who had no clue about any of this. I had multiple lost people come up to me and say, God has called you into ministry. And I told the last one to shut up. Literally, my aunt. I said, you need to shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. Many people say they believe in the Jesus of John chapter 1. The creator, the Messiah, the king, the savior. But when it comes to demonstrating that belief like Mary did, like those servants did at the wedding, rather than doing what he says and demonstrating that belief, we hesitate, we question, we complain, we delay, we give excuses. And we don't do. We disobey. And I want to tell you, that is as much of an answer to him as doing. So I, I don't know what he's called you to do. But I can tell you, the best thing you can do is follow the example of Mary and these servants. And whatever he says do, you do it. Without delay. Now, we've already talked a lot about Jesus, said a lot about him, but I want to talk briefly about this miracle specifically. Only the disciples and a few of these servants knew. Maybe they were one of the same, but this was not a, uh, for, for the entire wedding party. Uh, the, the head waiter, he, he didn't know. Uh, it sounds like the groomsmen and even Mary wasn't there when this happened and didn't know. He used ceremonial purification jars that the Jewish uh, followers used to cleanse. Somewhere between 100, depending on the size of each one, there were somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. That's how much water was in these water pots. It was a lot. More than anybody could dismiss and say, oh, well, they just found some in the back room. Mm -mm. And, and the jars, the Jewish religion had turned into such an idolatrous shadow full of uh, superstition, empty outward religion they, uh, practices. They, they had this, this saying. Uh, they still have it to this day. In the Jewish religion, it says, he who uses much water and washing will gain much wealth in this world. Well, that's not scriptural, but that was their thing. And so they had these jars. 
and their cleansing ritual, which was supposed to point them to their spiritual need for spiritual cleansing, became an empty superstition uh, that Jesus took it and made it mean something else. Fill it to the brim, change it to wine. Later, that wine, wine throughout the scriptures is used uh, symbolically in a lot of different ways for joy, for the gospel. In the Old Testament, it's, it alludes to the gospel and this uses um, uh, wine to kind of paint that picture. Uh, and then, of course, at the Last Supper, uh, communion that we, uh, we participate in every week, the, the, the wine became symbolic of the blood of, Je- of Jesus. Moses, remember back uh, during the Exodus, turned the water to blood. Jesus turned it to wine. Moses turning the water to blood, symbolic of the Old Covenant, the Old Way, the Old Testament. Jesus turning the water to wine, symbolic of the New Covenant in his blood. And Isaiah 55, first verse, the whole chapter, read Isaiah 55 later on your own time. It's, it's all about the gospel. And in verse 1, he says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, eat, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Isaiah is talking about the gospel, the salvation that's going to come through this Messiah in the future. And notice also one other thing on this before we wrap up. Jesus himself instructed the servants to draw some out. Did he have to sample it first? Did Jesus have to check it to make sure that what he wanted to happen happened? He didn't have any doubt. He tells them to draw and bring it to the head waiter. Let him taste it. There was no doubt. There was no doubt. So what on earth does the story of Jesus turning the water to wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee have to do with me and you? None of the details. None of the details. There is so much we could look at today. But none of the details recorded for us in these scriptures are there by accident. None of it is mundane. Even when you get to the Old Testament and all those genealogies, none of it is there by accident. None of it is mundane. None of it is kind of incidental. And those purification jars, they were not the main thing. To the Jewish leaders, they were the main thing. But in reality, they pointed to the main thing. And the Apostle John is saying, here he is. He's the fulfillment of what those things signified. Jesus. He's the replacement of the old shadow with the actual substance that the shadow was pointing to. Oh, and by the way, he's not merely the fulfillment or the replacement. The scriptures tell us he is the perfect, uh, to the uttermost, complete fulfillment, to the brim, overflowing in every aspect, in every capacity the revelation of God to us in the flesh. And John's, again, sole purpose in writing what he wrote is so you and I and everyone else who reads it may know that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing we would have eternal life. The story is the first sign at the wedding 
so we can know we're not talking about someone who's merely a good teacher or merely a uh, trustworthy prophet. Anyone who repents from their sin and turns to him in faith will receive eternal life at that moment. Not maybe in the future if you live a good enough life. At that moment. It's available right now. The Bible says those who have been redeemed by him have been changed. He'll give you abundant life, more than abundant life now. In the future as well when it's completed, but now. Abundant, overabundant over life, joy, peace with God. And listen, one of the saddest realities of the lies from Satan to people is this. I, I, I believe and I, I know I need to repent. I just got to get some things right in my life first. Don't do that. That's a lie. Can, can you imagine a, a, a person with leprosy coming up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, yeah, I, I believe, uh, but I, I'll, I'll be right back. Maybe I'll catch up with you next time. I got some things to get right first. I mean, that's absurd. And yet people believe You come to him broken, dirty, ashamed, full of leprosy. And his promise is that he will change you. He will cleanse you. He will forgive you. He will give you a a new heart. He will replace your cold, dead heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that can commune with him and worship him and serve him. And he will give you new desires. To, to serve and to honor him and to see his glory manifested. He will give you a new name. Is he going to heal your grandma or give you that new job? That's not promised. But that's not the main thing. He will make you right with God. He will cleanse you. He will give you peace if you do what he says. Let's pray. Lord, that's a big if, but we're grateful that we come to you knowing that you are a God who knows and that you are a God who cares and that everything that we're confronted with, you yourself have dealt with. And so we know we serve a loving and compassionate God. And we appeal to you this morning to ask you, Lord, to help us. Help us to know how, to know what you're saying, so that we can do whatever that is. And Father, as we live lives that are obedient to your call. May you receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise that you were due. And everything else is just gravy for us. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.